0: Welcome back to the Astro Flight Simulation Podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. I am announcing that from here on out on iTunes and Spotify, most episodes will appear only in part, and the full episode will be available on my Substack for paid subscribers only. The show will have links in the show notes to my Substack, which is astroflight.substack.com, which will link you to the paid episode in which... For $5 a month or $50 a year, you can get all of my back content as well as the new episodes in full. These full episodes include either the conclusion of the conversation or in some episodes, which can be up to two hours long, we will conclude the show portion and then it will include either a reflection, expansion, or question and answer period on the content. Thank you for joining and enjoy the show. The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathons. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say discover a build of god in the reach of the cyber. ultra experiments and the interrogation techniques that Ted Kaczynski was subjected to during his time at Harvard are central to understanding his crimes as the Unabomber and central to understanding who he is as a man, but also his philosophy, uh, his anti-technological philosophy. More than that, however, the experience at Harvard sheds light on why this philosophy may have led him to become a murderer. Because it's not, it's not inherent to his critique of technological society that one should kill. However, at the end of the manifesto, there is a call to arms, a violent call to arms. And it comes across very sober, comes across very measured, it comes across very logical, the whole thing. It's a very well thought out, well argued thesis, uh, and the conclusion is to... Uh, start a worldwide anti-technological revolution. Now, one thing that I worry gets lost when reading this manifesto is that it comes across perhaps uh, a little ridiculous to, to call for a worldwide revolution because the guy spent 25 years in prison. And he got arrested pretty soon after publishing this manifesto. It's well known that his brother recognized uh, the sound of his, the way he talked and his philosophy. And there's even something in there, a detail. A lot of this you can get from the Netflix documentary, so I'm not going to go over too much of that. But there's this one detail that stands out where he, he uses the phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too, and he gets it backwards. And that was something that him and his brother had talked about all their lives. So he used that to help recognize him and identify him as the Unabomber. So the problem is, is when you read this, you, you see that this is like, it may come across kind of, uh, like I said, ridiculous in the sense that he may come across as like impotent and, and, uh, unable, he's like got these like delusions of grandeur, um, and it, it all came crashing down like immediately. But the thing one must keep in mind that when he wrote that, which I thought I read somewhere that he actually wrote it in the seventies and as we'll find out. He was extremely pro- prolific of a writer in his cabin, uh, especially in the 70s. He had a stream, an extremely prolific period in the 70s where he was doing some writing. So I read that he actually wrote this manifesto in the early 70s while he was uh, uh, focused on the work of Jacques Elul, who he cites as one of the most important influences on him. There's many other influences that we might mention later, but uh, apparently he corresponded with Jacques Ellul in the early 70s through letter writing, and I remember reading somewhere that he wrote this manifesto during that time period in the early 70s, but he didn't send his first mail bomb, I don't think, until 1979. Uh, But we will will see soon that this was a lifelong obsession of his. Uh, It started when he was in his early 20s that he decided he wanted to bring technological society down and he wanted to start murdering people uh, to do so. In the late 60s, he came up with this. So he had been plotting this for his entire adult life. And one has to keep in mind that when he wrote this, and he was sitting on it for however many years... He was actively sending out mail bombs and assassinating people, and he didn't just send them in the mail. Many of these he hand-delivered. The composite sketch they had of him in the famous... There was actually several of them from different areas, because he was spotted on campuses of colleges where he hand-delivered many of these packages. So he traveled far from from Montana uh, to deliver these bombs, and that's where they saw him in his hood and, and, and sunglasses. So when he wrote this and when he sent it out, he had no idea he was going to be arrested. So he really was trying to start a, a revolution. He, he, there's no reason to accuse him of being some petty hermit who was just wantonly murdering random people. Uh, he had very good reason to believe because he had gotten away with it at this point for over a decade. So he was really a, a terrorist who was really trying to start a revolution. Uh, and he had good reason to believe that he would be successful at this. Or at least then he himself would be able to carry it out. And he wanted to inspire other people to carry it out. He wanted his continued uh, evasion of the authorities and detonation of these bombs to be an inspiration for other people. And, um, you know, he injured 23 and killed three. Uh, and I think it's probably only such a low death toll because uh, he was such an amateur bomb maker. He learned all this on his own. Um, this was before the days of Wikipedia. Uh, so he was uh, getting books out of the library on chemistry and testing them all out with, by trial and error. And some of these bombs were ineffective. They only managed to like burn someone's hand or burn their face. or He maimed and, and injured a lot of people pretty gravely. Uh, but Like, he had one that went off on a plane and it just blew a hole in the side of the plane or damaged the side of the plane and didn't take the plane down. The plane had an emergency landing. But, you know, if that bomb had been effective enough, he would have been, like, on the level of, like, Islamic terrorists and jihadists um, bombing Pan Am Flight 103 and things like that. He could have been on the level of, like you know, the worst terrorist in in the 20th century, and he was trying to be. That was his his intention. Uh, But he was working alone. These other terrorists, if you learn about these other terrorist networks that did things like take planes down, the IRA, all the things with the IRA, uh, you find out that there was a global network and that these people were flying all over the world, and they were sometimes flying to communist countries where they were being harbored by the USSR and encouraged to do these things, or they were flying to Middle Eastern countries And they were learning from professionals who had assassinated people before. As I'm sure you know, the IRA was like hiring people out to teach them how to make bombs. Uh, Ted Kaczynski acted alone. Ted Kaczynski wasn't connected to any of these networks. He was essentially trying to start a terrorist network. And uh, in the manifesto, he has uh, aspirations and plans for ways that he could, or his, his group, his non-existent group at the time, but he had hoped he could bring it into being, uh, he had ways in there that they could potentially start a chain reaction to uh, make this happen throughout the world. That's for later if we want to talk about that at all. But the thing that becomes clear when you research his life and his experience and you look into it closer is that this actually was the um, the activity of a, of a true psychopath and a true mentally ill person he very clearly suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. He has all the harm- hallmarks of paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, but he's also highly intelligent. He's extremely smart. And if you've seen that movie with Russell Crowe, A Beautiful Mind, the book points out that uh, some people with debilitating paranoid schizophrenia, if they are of such a level of intelligence, you got to remember this guy, okay, this guy was unmedicated, unsupervised. Alone in the woods with, like, full-blown full blown paranoid delusions. Full-blown schizophrenia for decades, okay? Decades. And the guy from Beautiful Mind uh, also kind of did this, on don't know, totally different. But the point is, to- totally different circumstances in the sense that he wasn't a hermit. But the point is, is in the book it talks about cases of men, people who have full-blown mental illness, but they're so intelligent... That they're able to keep a lid on it to an extent. They're able to like get ahead of it or get beyond it, and not cure themselves, but like keep it under control, basically through pure, pure IQ. Which, I guess, this is where we'll st- where where we'll start the story proper, because I'm going to focus mostly on the MK Ultra stuff. But there's a couple things worth noting. Uh, looking at his biography and what I know about the Netflix doc- documentary, which I haven't finished. I think some of these things focus a little bit too much on his family. They focus a little bit too much on his early life. And they don't really give you a clear picture of um, how transformative these Harvard experiments were. Because he, a lot of what we know about his childhood either comes from his brother and his mom or is him reflecting back on it after he's gripped by full-blown mental illness for decades. So uh, it becomes pretty clear that he does not have an accurate picture of himself as a person, and actually this was one of his obsessions. This is an obsession of paranoid schizophrenics, and this was an an obsession of Ted Kaczynski. They obsess and perseverate over the events of their lives for their entire lives, and they're unable to pick out the important and transformative things. So, um, jumping ahead kind of for a second here, but for example, uh, later on in life when they ask, you know, where did it all go wrong? And he talks about his life. Uh, he talks about the psychological torture that his family, uh, subjected him to, and he blows off the Harvard experiments. He says the Harvard experiments were not a big deal. They were basically inconsequential. They were meaningless, but the, uh, the psychological torture his parents put him through were traumatizing and he never recovered from them but when you look through his letters and his interviews and stuff and you know near the end I'll talk about this more when he talks about the psychological trauma they put him through it's extremely trivial meaningless things that he's spent his entire life thinking about uh i guess there was one time where this is just one anecdote but he, you know the information about him is rife with anecdotes like this There was one time where his mom asked him and his brother to clean up their room several times, and they didn't. So she yelled at them to to throw their socks in the hamper or something. Uh, And even into his 40s, he was writing letters to his mother about how could you do this to me. Uh, It's totally normal for a child to, you know, not want to clean up his room. Uh, These are the things he points to. It's stories like this that he points to that, that fucked him up and turned him into a killer and a terrorist. So... Uh, I contend, going into this, that you can't really take his word. And it's deceiving, because if all you know of him is his manifesto, it's so lucid, it's very easy to to really have no idea the how gripped by, for lack of a better term, insanity this man really was. Uh, so in his early childhood, and his mom makes a big deal about this, and his brother talks about it too, but his brother wasn't there. I don't think his brother was born yet. Um, he had a rash or something and he got put in the hospital as a baby, a uh, very important time for bonding, uh, when he was a little baby, maybe he was nine months old. I don't remember exactly how, 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 how old he was. He was under two though. He was, uh, still development, developing his frontal cortex, the crucial time period of when he was developing his frontal cortex, which is where your personality resides, it's also where your super ego resides, and it's where your memory resides. Okay, so studies obviously show that if you have improper bonding during this time, you can uh, grow up to have antisocial personality traits. So he went to the hospital. They wouldn't allow his mom to stay with him. She only let him. They only let her in for like two hours a week or something like that. And he spent all this time in the hospital as a baby. Uh, and uh, his parents say that fucked him up. Now. Unfortunately, there are going to be three points in time where this man is subjected to the cold, hard stare of medical science and doctors, Um, and it's pretty sad. Um, I'm not here to attempt to make someone feel empathetic with or sympathy for Ted Kaczynski, uh, but by the by the end of this you will you will see him suge- subjected to a battery of um testing and observation and clinical neglect and abuse by the system uh and it will probably make you feel more sympathetic to him than you may already even though that's not my intention so he was a little baby he was in the hospital he wasn't allowed to be with his mom he wasn't allowed to pair bond uh, of course you know it's possible that some nurses here and there held him. If he cried, they, sata- they, they cooed him and stuff like that. But it's also possible they gave him drugs to calm him down, to make him sleep or to stop him from crying. Or who knows, maybe he went catatonic during that stage. We don't really know how he dealt with this as a baby. It went on for a prolonged period of time, weeks and weeks and weeks. And the key here, not knowing what, exactly what happened to him, is that his mother says that he came out and he was never the same uh and i want to emphasize something she suspected that he had autism and she wanted because he he didn't make eye contact he didn't maintain eye contact he didn't respond to social cues all the hallmarks he didn't respond to social cues he didn't pick up on affect he wasn't able to read faces and things like that and he was extremely withdrawn she said he was never the same she said he was a normal baby going in abnormal baby going out. She suspected autism. She was going to get him examined. She even made appointments, uh, and for whatever reason, she didn't. Uh, I guess she read a bunch of books and tried to just love him and coddle him as a normal mom would, but he never became the same. Then, another important thing. I'm going to skip quite a lot, just so you know, uh, but it's all in the Netflix documentary. The next point that's important Now, Kaczynski does not harp on the hospitalization later in life, but he does harp on this next point. He actually makes this next point of uh, central importance to him. He skipped the sixth grade. It became obvious to the school that he was a gifted child and he was brilliant, so they gave him an IQ test, and he got 167. Now, he was like 10, or however old you are in fifth grade when he did this. So uh, he was very young at this time. Extremely gifted, skipped the 6th grade. In high school, he skipped the 11th grade. And then when he graduated, he got accepted to Harvard at 16 years old, okay? So he was 16 years old at Harvard. He says these experiences were basically traumatizing to him. It took him out of his friend group. It put him with a bunch of strangers. It immediately stigmatized him as, like, the smart kid, like, as different. Uh, He wasn't normal he was gifted, and he said this made him stand out. Uh, people who talk about him, who knew him when he was little after he got arrested, said that he was very withdrawn, very socially isolated, and very awkward. However, if you could get him in conversation, he was open, he was intelligent, and he was uh, uh, very, I was going to say effusive, but <laughs> he he would talk a lot. And this becomes clear later that that's, that's true about him. But the key is, is that he would do that with adults. He would do that with his teachers and his guidance counselors. He would do that with the people who noticed that he was gifted and would put him through these tests and suggest that he skipped grades. He wouldn't do that with his peers. And he says later that he never really had any friends. He had a couple acquaintances uh, that he never got close to. Um, so he points out that these two things as being like wildly traumatic for him. So when he turns 16, he goes to Harvard. Now, I'm going to, uh, you know, the title of this episode is MK Ultra America, the Unabomber. I'm hoping for this to be a series. I actually recorded one about Kanye West, but because his story was so ephemeral and it sort of like disappeared from the headlines so quickly, I never released it. Maybe I'll redo that one. I think he, I think he's probably worth redoing. He himself referred to himself as an MK Ultra victim. And his story with that personal trainer and everything really looks like an MK Ultra story. Um, but so I'm going to have to do a little bit of a digression here, actually a long digression here. <laughs> but uh, I don't truly believe you can understand the impact or the significance or the nature of the psychological study that Ted Kaczynski participated in without really understanding what the people like who were administering these things and without really understanding what the military, military intelligence, the CIA were getting up to and and civilians who were associated professionally with the CIA and funded by the CIA for decades and decades. If you don't have uh, a comprehensive understanding of what you're dealing with it would be very easy to write off this, this experiment, especially since Kaczynski himself writes it off. But I've, as I've tried to argue, he's not a reliable source for what's important. Uh, he's not a reliable source. So when he gets to Harvard, there's a psychology professor there who's chair or head of the department named uh, Henry Murray. Henry Murray had been, this was 1959, I believe, Henry Murray had been involved with military intelligence since, like, 1942, okay? He was a psychologist and a psychiatrist who came up with all sorts of personality tests, all sorts of um, ass- personality assessment tests, where the, the clinician would assess someone's personality based on his tools, and they would also administer different tests to, these t- to, these, uh, to their subjects, to help determine their personality. It's like a personality score. So you'd give this test. The one he's famous for is called the TAT test. It stands for something, T-A-T. There's copious amounts of information about this guy's work out there. He's one of the most important psychologists of the 20th century, but nobody's ever heard of him. However, psychologists have heard of him. Uh, There are people who know who he is because this test was considered fundamentally important to 20th century American psychology. So what this test was, uh, and I'm telling you this one test, he did a bunch of other tests too, and they're all named. We know what the name of them are, but this one's important because this was one of the things that made the military consider him such an important asset, and he gave this test to Ted Kaczynski, and Ted Kaczynski passed it with flying colors, Uh, which is interesting Because there's writing later on about the way he took this test, and it makes it sound like it actually identified him as being uh, mentally ill. But I don't think they were able to pick up on that until later, until they found out what was going on with him later. So the short version of this test is that you have a a series of cards, and it has very nondescript, uh, roughly drawn figures in it who are doing sort of mundane things. And there's not like a lot of facial features. Their clothing isn't very distinct, and the activities they're taking they're taking part in are are not uh, terribly dynamic. They're they're mundane things. So you give the person the card and you say, "What's happening in this picture?" You ask, "What led up to this picture, and what's the outcome?" And you're able to tell like how optimistic somebody is. Uh, you're able to tell how much of a rich inner life they have and how creative they are and things like that. And I guess he did really well. But let's back up now. Uh, When the military was engaged in World War II, they took on some huge number of all of the psychologists in America were employed by the military. I can't remember if it's one-third or two-thirds of all the psychologists in America at the time were somehow recruited to the war effort. There were 1,700 of them, and they all went into different fields, uh, military intelligence, the Navy, the Army, things like that. Many of them enlisted as well. Now, just so you know how gung-ho this guy Murray was, he was a, a well-bred, high-class New England Anglo who had a, a rather pampered life, uh, and he went to like a, a really prestigious private school, a really elite college, uh, excuse me, high school, This actually comes into play later with the way he related to Ted Kaczynski, so keep that in mind. But this was not a guy who was going to be enlisted as a grunt, okay? Uh, He was way too connected. He went to college. He was a professional, all these things. He was already in his 30s, I think, at this time. Nevertheless, he was so uh, fervent about serving the military that he actually wanted to enlist and go to the front lines and fight on the front lines in Germany or in Europe, and they wouldn't let him. Because they thought he was too important. His psychological work was too important. So what did he do for them? Well, the first thing he did... He did a lot of things. But the main thing they recruited him for was to administer these uh, psychological tests to enlisted people who hadn't gone to fight yet to make sure that they were fit for combat duty. And uh, they considered it such a success that they sent him to England to train, like, a special team of clandestine operators. So, basically, to to understand MKUltra, you have to understand two fundamental things. That America felt, and remember, America was, like, a still a pretty new nation. They weren't as developed as um, Europe in many ways. They weren't, their milit. our military was not on the level of the Red Army or the Wehrmacht, at all. We did not have the industrialization and the full mobilization that basically took place all through the 30s for those two countries. We, didn't, we got a late start to this. So they were way ahead of us. And they were um, engaged in much heavier fighting, and they were embroiled in espionage with each other way before we were. So America felt like it kind of was like a couple steps behind. And one of the things they found out about was that the Nazis had like a safe house, like this country estate where they would plan intelligence operations. Okay, So they decided they needed a safe house like that and they set it up in Maryland. And this is where Murray got his start. England set one up as well in the countryside and they sent Murray there to uh, administer these tests to British soldiers who were going to go behind enemy lines. So what they wanted Murray to do was to a administer this tat test to these guys to to weed people out who like didn't have what it took because one of the things they knew these people would have to do was withstand torture potentially okay this all keep the, all of this comes into play when we talk about Ted Kaczynski again so they knew that these were people who could be uh, kidnapped or captured and interrogated. And they wanted to make sure they would not give up military secrets, number one. Number two, they were going to be uh, disconnected from Central Command. They were going to be completely on their own. So they wanted to make sure that these people were going to be able to find and identify the proper targets and not waste their time out there in the field. They were going to be able to pick out who has information, who is strategically positioned, and who is an NPC player in the war Uh, so they can hone in on important targets and spy on them and get information out of them and try to manipulate them specifically. Because, you know, a lot of these guys were only going to have one shot. They weren't going to be able to, like, cast about and, like, try to feel these people out because they'll get, they would get uh, discovered. So Murray did two things to these guys. One, is that he would teach them how to read people and come up with a personality assessment based on first impression and really based just on visual impressions. So how they carried themselves, how they made their facial expressions, what they dressed like, what their clothing was like, how they wore their clothing on their bodies. And he would train them on how to identify like a soldier versus an enlisted man versus an officer versus an intelligence personnel – and all the rest of it the other thing he would do is he would subject them to harsh harsh brutal interrogations to see if they would crack under pressure and the mode like the 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 way he set this up is that you would have a, a closed off room with a one way mirror with a brilliant spotlight in front of the mirror shining on a chair right and you'd walk the person into the room and they'd immediately get hit by one spotlight and it would like blind them, glare their eyes, and, uh, you'd walk them through the room, they'd get a little break, and then you'd sit them down and boom, the other spotlight would be in their eye. And right when that happens, you start, like, laying into them. And, and you lay into them in several different ways. Uh, you berate them, you threaten them, you insult them, uh, you act petulant towards them and petty towards them to try to provoke them to want to be violent towards you. Uh, and of course their job was to, uh, remain calm and the other thing he would do is the mirror and this i guess was on purpose because this comes up multiple times when they talk about these interrogations the mirror was such that you could see shadowy figures behind it so like it gave you this like sense of like uh foreboding and this sense of like being like haunted by these shadowy figures that you can't talk to that you know are observing you but you can't reason with them you can't interact with them and it's supposed to like Heighten the, the the psychological you know aspects of this test, right? So he does all this, and uh, this gets him in with the OSS, the Operation of Strategic Services. At some point, either he got hooked up with them first, and they sent him to England, or they liked the results of this so much that they now lots of other stuff. They did lots of other stuff, and one of the only other things I'll mention is that they would go, and I can't remember if Murray himself did this. I think Murray himself did this, but. People who worked very closely with Murray would go to the Japanese internment camps and they would uh, interview these people and they would talk to these people. And the reason why is because this was a population of people who were not indoctrinated into the American way of life and the American mindset. And these were people who had a whole different paradigm for understanding themselves and the world and their relationship to the nation in which they lived. So they wanted to gather information from these people to see how their minds worked. And they also wanted to test on them if they could be indoctrinated. Uh, and they consider these people like, you know, kind of like blank slates in a way that they would be able to uh, test out their theories to see if like you could indoctrinate people into like the Western Uh, perspective and the Western way of life or the Western mode of being. So Murray was involved in this in some capacity. I don't remember exactly how. So he was connected to the OSS. The war ends. Uh, Many of these people were enlisted. Many of these people uh, had become military men. Murray, I don't think, ever ended up listening in any capacity. But even the ones who remained civilians ended up in a very close relationship with the military for the rest of their lives. Uh, and this is absolutely true about Murray. Murray was in contact with the CIA and involved in many of their programs, uh, for as long as his life lasted that I read about, um, into the early sixties. This includes direct, heavy involvement in the MK Ultra program. Uh, so, The military, just to give you an idea, just to give you a picture, uh, the military became the number one, the Department of Defense became the number one funder of psychology through the university system in the entire country. They made up like one third to two thirds of the budget uh, for like all different colleges that they worked with Caltech, Harvard, Stanford Um, at Harvard. They, the budget they gave to Harvard in one year in the early late '40s, early '50s was 13 million dollars. The entire budget for Harvard was like 65 million dollars, and that 13 million dollars included every penny that was spent on the psychology department. That's where most of the money that they gave to these colleges uh, went to the psychology departments. Okay, so the military was. Giving money to these programs or to these departments, excuse me, and working closely with these psychologists, helping them implement, uh, these programs and gathering data from them, taking data from them. This was the way the CIA was able to make their programs nationwide without having like CIA agents and, you know, men in black uniforms going, going all over the place, gathering data and conducting these like shadowy experiments. They had civilians who were not in any way ostensibly connected to the CIA. However, guys like Henry Murray had spent all these years doing all this work for the military, and he made all these relationships and all these connections. And they did something else of note. They traveled to the USSR at least twice, okay? Him and some of the people that he was very closely connected to. And they were there on behalf of the CIA. I know he went in the early 50s. There was another trip they talked about in the late 40s that I don't remember if he actually went to to Russia with them, but they were people he worked with closely, so they were sharing data, sharing insights together. The reason why they went to Russia, was well, two things. One... Uh, this is all ostensible, by the way. This is all the CIA's version. So whenever the CIA... You, we know they lie. They have a they have a history of lying about everything constantly, all the time. I don't really believe their reasons for going there. I wonder if there was collusion, actually. If they were actually st- sharing interrogation secrets. But the official story itself is bad enough anyway that it, it doesn't have to be that. So uh, there were some televised confessions made. In the late '40s, for people in like Hungary, where the where the where the USSR took over, and they were confessed, they confessed to all sorts of horrific crimes that they were executed for, and it was clear to the observers in America, especially the military, that these people were coerced into committing these. uh, In excuse me, they were coerced into making these confessions. So they wanted to find out the techniques that these people subjected them to, to, to force these confessions. So they went there under the guise of, you know, some academic research. I don't even know how they made this happen, like why Russia allowed it. I'm sure the CIA gave them like multiple, multiple layers of cover. Uh, The point being, they went there as professors who were supposedly not connected to the CIA. Now Remember, Henry Murray, the guy who administered this test to Ted Kaczynski, when he was 16 years old, went to Russia purposefully to study interrogation techniques, mind control, brainwashing, and coercion, okay? I don't know what they came up with and what they brought back, but it, it wasn't nothing. <laughs> they went twice that I know of, uh, him and his colleagues. The second time they went there, he, the, the ostensible reason this was in the early 50s, was to uh, study like mass propaganda mind control. What did the Russian people think of their country? How did they feel about their country? What effect did the propaganda that Russia was putting out have on the people? This was what they were there to study. So they were they were all studying mind control uh, and things like that. Now, I could get into the specifics of all this stuff, but then we'd start to get off the Ted Kaczynski thing. But I do want to mention it very briefly because I think there's an element of Kaczynski being subjected to some things that no one can prove. But uh, the people involved in this were doing extremely... I mean, they—they they, they, things they did to people really defies credulity. They would do things like give people sleeping drugs and put them to sleep for four or five days and then they would wake them up and dose them with mega high doses of LSD for like five days straight. Then when that wore off, they would keep them up and subject them to to interrogations uh, and try to force confessions out of them. They would try to control their mind. They would try to force them to say and think things that they don't say and think. And really what they were trying to do was break down the subject's personality and then rebuild it. I say this because this is exactly the philosophy behind the communists who had prisoners in their camps in Eastern Europe. This is exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to break down the person's personality and uh, reinsert their own prescribed personality. The reason the Russians did it... Now, here's the thing. The Russians didn't do this to prisoners of war as torture. They did this to regular citizens in the countries that they took over as experiments. And they picked religious people and nationalists, mostly. And they weren't... A lot of them... Some of the people that Russians picked and did this to were actually soldiers who fought against the Red Army. So it was somewhat of a, of a punishment. Uh, but some of them were just regular people that they picked out and did this to. But uh, but the reason why they picked nationalist and religious people, when I say religious people, I mean they picked out like people who are studying in the seminary and stuff. It's because these people had an ideology, or they had a constructed personality that was like shaped around like feelings of nationalism and uh, religion, which are the types of things that will become barriers to communist thinking. Those will stop people, prevent people from eating up communist ideology. So why were Americans doing these things? And I can't say for sure, I can't prove that they learned this from the communists. And I can say that the psychological foundations, like the the clinical psychology and psychoanalytic foundations that the Russians and the Americans were operating on were the same. It's basically Freud uh, and a few others, but Freud is the main one. So it would make sense that they were doing some of the same practices but didn't actually share the information. But either they went to Russia and learned these techniques from the communists on purpose so they could, uh, like by observing them, so they could perpetuate them on the American people, or um, perpetrate them, sorry, or they were actually taught that by the communists because uh, they went there to learn from them. Now, skip ahead, just real quick, I won't get into this, but there are other instances of the CIA in the MK Ultra program, okay, because remember, these were MK Ultra people doing this, going to Russia. Later, it's got nothing to do with Kaczynski. They brought Russians to Echelon, which was a retreat that was funded, constructed, and maintained by the CIA and the MK Ultra program for decades, where they would indoctrinate people. Uh, they brought communists there from Russia, one of whom was Boris Yeltsin, who says that he decided to dismantle the USSR at Echelon. So there is precedent for them sharing things with the Russians. Did they do that uh, or, or or did they just uh, observe it and pick it up? Either way, they came back to America and they did the same thing to American citizens. But... They wanted to do it to try to uh, indoctrinate them into the American way of life and the American mindset. And here's the key. Here's the key. Murray's assistant was this guy named Kenneth Keniston, who wrote this book called The Uncommitted, which has a chapter about the test that Ted Kaczynski was uh, subjected to. This was Murray's assistant. As far as I know, this guy wasn't directly connected to the CIA, but he was working with Murray at Harvard. He names specifically that the thing they want to indoctrinate people into is the technological society. That That was openly his objective, was to indoctrinate people who might reject... Or not want to go along with technological progress. And they might not buy the technological progress. They might not buy into the American myth of progress as it relates to technology. This was what his life's work was. This was what he was doing before he started doing these tests with uh, Henry Murray. Uh, This was what he was looking for. The reason his book is called The Uncommitted is because it's about... uh, Psychologically aberrant people, sociopathic, antisocial people who don't accept the myth of American progress, who don't accept the myth of technological progress, and don't accept that uh, technological advancements is a good for society, but uh, are are don't match any known uh, abnormal psychological profile, so that they are able to go through life uncommitted. But they still are uh, abnormally. They still have an abnormal psychology, okay. And that abnormal psychology is that they don't accept uh, the Western way of life. This was in the fifties when this guy was coming up with this thesis, and he went about doing field work to study these people. And one of the things he did in this field work was these psychological tests with uh, Henry Murray at Harvard that involved Ted Kaczynski, okay? Remember that. It's very, very important. It's crucially important. But let's get back to Murray real quick because I want to make the case that it's worth speculating that the things that happened during this test are far worse than uh, are let on. So these people involved with MKUltra, okay, okay, One of the things they figured out, I think they got this information from a uh, captured Nazi uh, soldier, but they found out that one of the things that was happening out of this field office that I told you about, this safe house where they were running their intelligence operations, they somehow got their hands on psilocybin, and they were giving it to prisoners that they captured as a truth serum to see if the psilocybin would evoke... uh, Them to make them more likely to tell the truth during interrogations, make them forget who they are, forget the things they were indoctrinated into, and be more open to suggestion. Okay? The Nazis were giving this to them, and the Americans found out about it, and they said, well, fuck, we need to get our hands on psilocybin, right? So they did two things. The first thing they did was buy the entire world's supply of LSD from Albert Hoffman who synthesized it in Switzerland right around the same time, sometime in the 40s. Now, I have my guesses here because, again, remember, everything the CIA says is a lie. So if you have a conversation with somebody about the CIA and their end of the conversation are the things that the CIA said, they're probably wrong. They probably don't know what they're talking about because everything the CIA says is a lie. And the story is that he synthesized it by accident. Here's the reason why I think this is bullshit. There's two reasons I think it's bullshit. The first is that they knew the Nazis... The only missing link in this is that this guy was in Switzerland. I don't know what the connection is why he was in Switzerland. If if the CIA or the British intelligence had any connections to Switzerland or to the lab that he was in. But... I don't know what where they were in the war either if they were trying to undermine the Nazis themselves. But either way... Uh, he was supposedly trying to synthesize a heart rate, uh, a circulatory enhancement drug. He was trying to increase heart rate and blood pressure and get the blood flowing faster. Now, why the fuck would they do that? That sounds like bullshit, okay? The reason, supposedly, that they were doing that is because they knew the Nazis were giving their soldiers, uh, like, speed on the eastern front, so that they could march much, much longer, and they can go much, much longer without any food, and they could withstand the cold. So the question is, why would this lab in Switzerland be synthesizing this when they could just give the people speed? I I don't know. That's the story, though. He was supposedly synthesizing speed, a new formula of it, uh, and he accidentally synthesized uh, acid. Well, it's pretty fucking convenient that he accidentally synthesized a chemical fucking version of the exact same drug that the, 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 the enemies of America were giving to their prisoners to um, use as a truth serum. At the same time, America was looking for enhanced interrogation techniques to try to get more information out of their prisoners and, uh, and control their minds and open them to suggestion. Now... This guy, Henry Murray, who I keep talking about, when he found out about this, this was like he didn't bat an eyelash because, A, he was already a speed addict. He did Benzedrine, which is also what Kerouac did. He was a Benzedrine addict for over a decade. And he had already been giving drugs like aminal nitrate or amyl nitrate and pentobarbital, uh, as well as corticosteroids and other drugs to patients, sometimes without their knowledge. Um, to try and uh, see if his uh, 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 psychological studies of them and if his uh, powers of persuasion were enhanced by these things. And this fucked some people up, and some of them died. Uh, I I don't know if any of Murray's particular, specifically, his patients died, but there was a whole bunch of CIA-affiliated. When I say CIA-affiliated, this isn't some loose thing. They were in contact with the CIA, I told you this, they were they were in contact with the CIA. They were getting paid by them. They were sharing their studies the they were connected to other doctors they would not have been connected to through the CIA that were uh, helping give them suggestions on practices, things that worked, things that didn't work. OK, all these other guys that they were talking to were also giving their patients drugs and they were giving their patients drugs against their knowledge on purpose. They didn't think it would work if they knew they were on drugs, so they had to give it to them against their knowledge. Okay. One of the things these people did in this program was identify people who wouldn't be able to find a way to retaliate if they figured out what was going on. And I don't mean they wouldn't be able to be violently, uh, uh, violently able to, like, attack these people and retaliate. They already had that covered. They had already killed people. Uh, A lot of these were military men. A lot of them were accompanied by uh, CIA agents who were trained killers. Uh, So they didn't have to worry about that. They were able to pick criminals, drug addicts, prostitutes, and mentally ill people and incarcerated people and people in insane asylums. They picked all these people out on purpose because they wouldn't have recourse to legal uh, retribution because they didn't have connections. They didn't have networks. They were alone. They were drifters. They were derelicts. They were—they didn't fit the psychological profile of somebody who would go back and like tell their family and retaliate. They fit the psychological people who would basically just take the abuse and get thrown out on the street and discarded. Some of these people died. I don't know if anyone died under Murray. Okay? The key here, when we're talking about Ted Kaczynski, is they purposefully picked mentally ill people because... They thought it was more likely that the mentally ill person wouldn't be able to figure out that they were being drugged against their knowledge. They would just think it was like all part of their delusions. And they would just think these guys were like another doctor that they had to deal with because they were these people were like institutionalized and always, always exposed to clinicians and things like that. A lot of this was going on in the early 50s. Uh, the key to remember about this portion is that they targeted mentally ill people on purpose, okay? One other thing I want to say real quick, it'll come back around later, is that um, when they were trying to figure out if like they could use LSD in the way they wanted to use LSD as a synthetic psilocybin, they sent multiple expeditions to Mexico to collect magic mushrooms so they could bring them back to America, test it out on themselves. All of these guys were taking the LSD, okay? Um, oh, I should mention... MK Ultra purchased from Albert Hoffman, the guy who synthesized LSD supposedly by accident. Forgot to mention. The CIA through Sidney Gottlieb, by the way, who was the head of MKUltra, he ran the whole program, right? He purchased every single dose of acid on the planet from this guy. Okay? He literally bought the entire world's supply of LSD. From the guy who th- synthesized it, so that's another giveaway to me that this was done on purpose, um, that this was planned, that 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 they, that he made the, the LSD for the CIA. That's what I think. I think he was synthesizing psilocybin. Uh, the CIA bought the entire world supply, not necessarily <coughs> so they had enough to give people, but also so that nobody else got it, so that the Russians didn't get it. This was after World War II. He synthesized LSD apparently during World War II, but this purchase didn't happen until afterwards. Sidney Gottlieb didn't get, who was a chemist himself, by the way, um, he didn't get connected to the CIA till the late 40s. So the other thing that's important is that one of the there's a lot to talk about here, but I'm going to skip a lot of it because it's not, it's not relevant to Kaczynski. One of the people who went down to Mexico to collect mushrooms and bring them back was Timothy Leary. And with Timothy, who worked at Harvard. He was a Harvard psychologist. Okay? One of the things he did was synthesize uh, psilocybin capsules. So they they made psilocy- like synthetic psilocybin and he was taking it and he was giving it to the stu- his students and he was conducting all, all these experiments with it. Right? Uh, I'll have to leave that there. There's a lot to talk about with him. He probably he should get his own episode. But Timothy Leary was a straight up fucking CIA agent. He wasn't really a CIA agent because most of these guys weren't actually employed directly by the CIA. The money went to the departments they worked for, and then they had, but they had free reign. They was like the department was given at one point in time in the fifties. The amount of money the CIA was giving to Harvard Psychology Department was equal to more money than all of the tuition revenue they collected that year. That's how much money they were giving them. So while these guys were not on paper employed by the CIA, they never went through CIA training. They weren't CIA agents. Even Sidney Gottlieb, who was trained by the I mean excuse me, directly employed by the CIA, he was like a chemistry grad student. He wasn't even like a CIA agent. These guys didn't have military training or any of that stuff. So Timothy Leary, we'll have to leave him there for a second. Well, let's go back to the let's let's go back now to the experiments that Ted Kaczynski was part of. Okay, remember what I said about Kenneth Keniston? He was very interested in undiagnosed people who thought differently about American society. He was very concerned with the beatniks. He was very concerned with the hippie movement. He studied them closely. He wrote about them in his book, okay? It's not a coincidence that this guy, who was this psychologist, who was writing this book about people who were not indoctrinated, people who were exposed to indoctrination. This is the whole point. These are people who were raised in America. They were exposed to indoctrination, and they refused to go along with it. They wanted to know why. Why did these people refuse to go along with it? Why did they become hippies? Why did they become back to nature? Okay? It's not a coincidence that in the same department where he was conducting these studies and asking these questions, Timothy Leary and this guy whose real name I forgot, but he goes by Ram Das, he became this like Indian guru, was also in the psychology department with Timothy Leary, taking all this psilocybin, giving it to students. It's these guys like started the hippie movement. Okay? They started the hippie movement. Literally. MK Ultra people gave Ken Kesey... CIA agents gave Ken Casey and Allen Ginsberg LSD, okay? Owsley, okay, if you're as old as I am, if you're Gen X, there's a chance that you've actually had Owsley LSD. Owsley is the chemist who went on Grateful Dead tour, making LSD, selling it all across the country. Owsley's recipe was the purest recipe ever ever in America at the time. And I got his LSD because the dead was still around. And it's different. (laughs) It doesn't exist anymore. What those guys were taking was CIA grade LSD. And what we have now doesn't exist anymore because Owsley died. And then this new person came along who was a chemist who synthesized it himself. And if you've seen Breaking Bad, you understand that like every chemist who synthesizes these things, he does it a little different. He puts his own tweak on it. And after Owsley died, there was no more CIA grade LSD. He's the only guy who knew. I mean, he taught a ton of people, right? He got it from the CIA. Okay. He got the recipe From the people who bought the LSD from the guy who invented it, all right? So this whole thing, I like to say sometimes that post-war America was a CIA rat maze because these rats were created by the CIA and then the CIA studied them for decades, all right? This whole thing was engineered. The whole thing was manufactured. The whole counterculture was created directly by the CIA at Harvard with Timothy Leary And this guy, Henry Murray. Okay. I'll go back to that in a minute because there's more to talk about with Henry Murray and Timothy Leary, but we got to talk about Ted Kaczynski because Murray didn't get hooked up with Leary until he had been working with Kaczynski for like a year. So why was Ted Kaczynski in these tests? These were personality tests. This is what they did. Okay. They put flyers out to their students, a questionnaire in, uh, one of Murray's classes. And it was, uh, do you want to be part of this study? And the study is you write an autobiography of your life and you include your life's philosophy. These were like sophomores. So these were people who had already taken some classes they'd already taken some psychology classes. They'd already taken some philosophy classes. Um, so they had a little bit of their Harvard indoctrination, but they also had a lot from their childhood, and they wanted to get them kind of early. And this study was to go through their whole college career, so tenth, uh, tenth, uh, ju- uh, sophomore, junior, and senior year. Kaczynski was not in that class, okay? This was a three-year study. Everybody in the class except Kaczynski was recruited through these flyers. And the flyers were, were basically like, you write this life history, you like write this life philosophy, you go into a room, a controlled environment, where uh, you're being observed by professors and you have a debate and you defend your life's philosophy with another, with like a, a teaching intern, a grad student. This is what they signed up for. They got paid $15 an hour and it was two hours a week for the, the rest of their college career. Right? All of these people this is this matters i mean you know I'm not, I'm not I'm not like I don't care about class in the way that the Marxist people do, but this actually matters because the professors cared about this. It was Keniston who wrote the book, the uncommitted was the assistant Murray was the professor blue bloods northeastern uh high society elite private schools, teaching elite people, a bunch of the kids from the in a bunch of the kids in the study went to the same exclusive private school that Murray went to. A bunch of the other they were all upper class. They had all gone to the best schools, right? Kaczynski was the only person in the study who was from a blue-collar family. He was one of the only people in the study who wasn't from the Northeast. There was a few others, but the ones that weren't went to good schools and had good families. Not that he had a bad family, but they weren't rich. They didn't have a lot of money. He dressed shoddily. he kept to himself. He was very, very quiet. All right, and he was not in Murray's class. So why did he end up in the study? It's because Kensington, or Kens, uh, Ken, what was his name, Keniston? It's because Keniston uh, targeted him as one of these uncommitted people, as one of these sociopathic people who do well on tests and fit a normal enough psychological profile that they don't get diagnosed with a with a disease, a mental illness. Uh, but they do have antisocial traits, and they aren't indoctrinated in the way I was talking about. Uh, they don't accept the prevailing ideology that's that's fed to them. They targeted Kaczynski and because he was working class, and he was shoddy, and he, like, wore the same clothes every day, and he was unkempt and disheveled, that he fit the psychological profile of the type of person that got targeted for the MK Ultra program, uh, because they were mentally ill or because they were different or because they, you know, they didn't have the resources uh, that some other people might, they weren't as well connected. But it's very specific in this case because you had Keniston who was trying to study people who rejected specifically the technological society. So they gave Ted Kaczynski the TAT test and he scored well on it. But they knew that he still had these like anti-social tendencies and they identified him because there was like an initial test. Oh, well, the initial test was the TAT test. When I talked about where they show people the cards, but then they also turn in their essay. They had to write the essay and, and the autobiography and turn it in at the very beginning. And they identified Ted Kaczynski as the most nihilistic of the entire group. Okay. So they were like purposefully picking this guy out to study him to study, like, aberrant uh, antisocial behavior and mindset. They wanted to see if they could break through to him specifically, and they wanted to see if they could, like, reindoctrinate him, okay? So he goes through these tests. What happens in these tests? Well, it's almost impossible to find out. The reason why is the guy who wrote this book, Harvard and the Making of the Unabomber, went, during the writing of this book, to go look at these notes, to go look at these tests... And he got to look at some of it. He he put some mention in of like some notes they made about Kaczynski. Got to look at his uh, autobiography. But, you know, remember this was a CIA MKUltra test? Uh, he left, went back, to only to find out, because he he wrote a 10-page article for The Atlantic in like 2000. And then he decided to turn it into a book. When he went back to look at it more, the records were permanently sealed forever. He couldn't open them, couldn't read them, couldn't get in. So he wasn't able to, like, go back and make notes and, and update it and stuff. So he could only use whatever notes he did the first time that he was writing a short article for. Why would they do that? Why would, why would they seal those records? Well, ostensibly it was because this was a guy in prison and he had killed people. And there were certain things about his trial that were, like, still outstanding. But they never came to anything. But it's all bullshit anyway. I think the reason why is because this was a CIA program and they probably fucked this dude up. They definitely fucked this dude up. And they didn't want to have to answer for it because, of course, it would involve an investigation that tried to get to the bottom of all this and find out what went into it and who was involved and God only knows what they would have exposed. So you can't get it now, okay? Uh, You can't find out what Murray thought about it. You can't find out about the notes. But one of the things this guy noted the first time he got to look at it this is extremely important. They noted that Kaczynski was the most adversely affected of, by, the, by the techniques of the exam than anybody else. He had the most dramatic responses. He had the most like negative reactions to uh, the test. Okay, So the Harvard professors and the psychologists who worked for the CIA identified Kaczynski as being the most deeply affected of all the people. All right, so what did they do? Well, I already told you that Murray uh, had the interrogation technique where you had the spotlight, you had the really harsh in, interrogator, and behind the two the one way mirror, you could see the shadowy figure, so it was this whole like thing so they did that to these guys. they hooked them up to like electrodes and a breathing machine not a breathing machine, but it, it monitored uh, uh, an EKG they monitored their heart rate and their respiratory rate they wanted to see if it went up and down, things like that um. And they tricked them. They told them they were going to be debating uh, a peer about their life's philosophy, philosophy. but really what they did was get subjected to this lawyer, this law student, who was meant to pick apart their argument, but not necessarily just on logical grounds, but he was meant to pick apart them as people uh, and berate them. He was meant to berate them and make them feel stupid and attack them for their ideas ask them how the hell can you believe this why would you write this uh and it and it was an attack it was very similar to the interrogation techniques right so it was psychologically traumatizing to some people but they uh oh oh so so what they would do by the way is they would film these kids right and then they would closely scrutinize their facial expressions and then after the barrage of insults and things like that they would show them back the videos of themselves this is like what happens in the Terminator in Terminator two where they're showing Linda Hamilton flipping out when she's calm and they're saying, look at how you acted, look at the things you said. And they were like going over it, like as part of like her therapy. This is what they did to these people. And they would ask them, why did you make that face when, when, when you did, when he said that to you? Why do you look like that? Look what you look like here. Uh, and, uh, a lot of it was demeaning and belittling. Now, There were tests done after the fact on these test subjects to see how they responded to it, to see how they turned out later in life. Didn't happen to Kaczynski, obviously, because he had disappeared to the mountains. Some of these people said it was no big deal. Some of these people said it was fun. The whole thing was a game. I loved it. Some of these people were like, oh, it was awful, but they weren't traumatized by it. Um, Only a couple people had negative things to say, but one of the negative things they said is that they wanted to get violent with the interrogator. They wanted to kill the interrogator. They wanted to attack the interrogator. And some of them even said, there's only a couple guys though, okay? They said, I would have uh, taken him outside, but I was able to like tell myself that this is just part of the experiment and we're in we're in school here. So uh, I didn't fight the guy, right? Ted Kaczynski wrote in a letter to someone in like 2017, that this uh, experience was not traumatizing to him. It has nothing to do with uh, why he killed people. It has nothing to do with his philosophy. I don't buy it because the people who conducted the tests say he was the most adversely affected of all of them. They said this at the time in 1962 when the test was ended. Uh, so there's Kaczynski 40 years later saying that. I've already tried to argue to you that he doesn't really have the capacity to like prioritize these things. He, he doesn't have the... Uh, self-awareness to really understand what's important and what's not so the things that are trivial he perseverates on and things that are potentially very important he poo-poos so i don't think he's being honest with himself or with the with the reader about the effect this had on him the other thing is that um there's no evidence that they gave these people drugs during this test but there's no evidence about really anything that they did because the tests are sealed Okay. And even if they weren't, I don't know if they would have admitted it. And I don't know if they would have admitted it on the Harvard version of these tests. If they did do that and they gave it to the CIA, we know for a fact it was destroyed because Sidney Gottlieb, who I mentioned, who was the head of MK Ultra, was alerted by the head of the CIA that, uh, that there was this New York Times story by Seymour Hirsch on the cover of the New York Times. I think it was 1974. They were investigating it because they did a bunch of illegal shit. They did a bunch of shit that violated the Nuremberg Codes, and they did a bunch of shit that violated the Geneva Conventions. So he told Sidney Gottlieb to go uh, destroy all the evidence, and he did. He destroyed all the evidence. So... If they did anything during these tests and reported back to the CIA about their findings, we will never know what it is because Sidney Gottlieb destroyed it. The only reason we know anything about MKUltra is because there's other people that worked for the CIA after that happened, after the expose, after the church commission, after... Well, no, before the church commission. The church... There were several commissions uh, by several different uh, senators, and one of them was convened because... After the beginnings of these investigations, a CIA employee was like, hey, I know where there's still some documents. But they were kind of vague. They were like receipts. Remember I was telling you the CIA was like funding all these research institutions so that the professors didn't have to like list themselves as CIA employees. So these were like the receipts to those things. So it only told you so much. Uh, And I'm not going to claim that Kaczynski was drugged uh, because there's no evidence for it. And it's possible, it's known that uh, some people with genetic dispositions to uh, p- uh, paranoid schizophrenia, right, they might have the, the genetic disposition to it, but they don't have any traumatic experience in their formative years. And when I say formative, remember that Kaczynski was 16 when he started these experiments, and he was only 19 when it, when it ended, or I think it was 20 at the end. Yeah, it was 20. He was born in 1942. He graduated Harvard in 1962. Your frontal cortex does not finish developing until you're like 25. So he was undergoing these intense psychological abuses when he was still developing his personality. He was still developing his superego and his ego. Superego being the part of your brain that is able to hold back your base desires like killing people. While this was forming, he was being subjected to these tests. And I want to at least mention that uh, it's reasonable to suspect he was drugged against his will without his knowledge with LSD or other things because A, it was known that Murray had done that in the early 50s and B, in 1959, right when the tests started, Murray linked up with Timothy Leary And he took Timothy Leary's psilocybin, and he took LSD, and he was already a benzodrine addict, and he started taking LSD, like, every fucking day. Alright? And he would go give, like, lectures that were basically him relating him and Timothy Leary's experience on LSD. And it's known that MKUltra was giving LSD to patients who fit the profile of Kaczynski without their knowledge. It's known that Murray himself was giving drugs to patients without their knowledge. So I contend it is extremely reasonable to suspect that these guys drugged Ted Kaczynski without his knowledge. I can't say that for sure, and I think that if he didn't drug him, it doesn't matter, because we already had this sociopathic guy, we already had this recluse, we already had this guy who had an abnormal upbringing. He had this experience as a child, and if you have a, a genetic disposition, predisposition to depression or psych, uh, psychosis or something like that, and you don't have a traumatic experience, a traumatic experience in your formative years, you may never develop the full-blown symptoms. But if you do have a traumatic experience, then you you might develop the full-blown symptoms. And Ted Kaczynski had multiple. F- traumatic experiences during this time in his life. He was subjected to these tests over and over and over again. So I contend that the Unabomber was basically collateral damage from this fucked up psychological test. And these people basically did this to this guy. He was a guinea pig for them. I mean, Keniston did this study and wrote this book literally using Kaczynski as a test subject who he identified on purpose, targeted him, pointed him out, and got him into the program so that they could study him, why he thought the way he did. We also know that while he was at Harvard... So so these things were like, why... The the test, the questions were like, why do you believe the things you believe? And then they would berate the people about it. And the thing is is some of the people who related the way uh, this test was administered, they would say things like the interrogator would personally insult you. He would start chit-chatting with you before the actual thing started, and he would be very smug, and he would, like, snicker at you and, like, make jokes and make haughty comments about how poorly you looked. And he would insult you, but in a subtle way while he was acting like your friend. And then during the actual interrogation, he would outright insult you and scream at you and call you stupid and politically you for your beliefs. Okay? This is all very important. So keep it in mind. Because there's another element to all of this that is also extremely important. Because not only was Henry Murray a uh, drug-addicted CIA-employed psychologist, psychiatrist, who was doing LSD with Timothy Leary while he was doing these tests on Ted Kaczynski, he was also a sexually deviant fucking degenerate who had an affair with a woman that was basically his second wife okay and he developed she was supposedly his like a research partner and they developed this uh form of psychological testing called the dyad now i tried to read about the dyad it's extremely convoluted it kind of doesn't make any sense and it just all sounds utterly ridiculous But this was the uh, technique that he used with his subjects. It was his own version of, like, psychoanalysis, right? And basically, like, the the, the most basic understanding of this is that, like, you form a dyad between yourself and the subject, and you have this, like, super deep interpersonal relationship, which I think is super fucked up. But uh, he had a lot of critics throughout his life and one of the things they criticized him for was that he got, like, too involved with his patients. They became, like... He saw them as, like, his children. He would, like, say that. And he wanted them to see him as, like, their father figure. He would say that. And a lot of people said that that was inappropriate. And that's what the dyad was. And he incorporated the dyad into these tests, okay? This woman that that was his uh, research assistant and his mistress... They would do things like torture each other sexually in bed where they would like draw blood. He would tie her up in like S&M gear. And here's the key. He would put makeup on and women's clothing on and do his nails and put a wig on and fuck her. Okay. And she would write about this in her diary. She would write about all their sexual encounters in which he would wear dresses and skirts and paint his nails and tie her to the bed and fuck her brains out, okay? Keep that in mind. I'm telling you to make all these mental notes because all of this shit comes back in Ted Kaczynski's fucking delusions later, okay? That's why I'm telling you to keep all these things in mind because later, when he is psychiatrically evaluated by the court, all of this shit comes out So, when they were supposed to write the autobiography, right, to go into this test that includes their life philosophy, they were also asked to talk about sexual fantasies. They were also asked to talk about how much they masturbated and what did they think about when they masturbated, okay? Why the fuck were they asking them this? I have no idea. But how did it get incorporated into the interrogations? We'll never know because Harvard sealed the records, okay? But what we do know is that at least the author of this book, the Harvard and the um, the making of the Unabomber, and the psychiatrist who evaluated them? They read his uh, autobiography. It doesn't say in any of the stuff I've read what he says in the autobiography. All right. But it does say he was asked to talk about his sexual fantasies and the things he masturbated to. And it also says that during this interrogation, these things were brought up and the guys were belittled for it. The guys were made fun of for it. And they were told that they were freaks and deviants and gay and all sorts of shit like that, right? So they go through these tests, right? Ted Kaczynski. Okay, and now there is so much more to talk about this guy, Henry Murray, and MKUltra. But maybe we'll talk about it in the Timothy Leary episode. But for now, that's it. That's the MK Ultra test. That's what he got subjected to. That's what happened to him. Okay? Now, when Ted Kaczynski got arrested... I have to take a sip of water. When Ted Kaczynski got arrested, he insisted... This was an obsession of his, okay? That went on for like... I think it went on for six or seven years until the court finally fucking put a a halt to it and stopped this whole thing. He insisted that he was not mentally ill and that he wanted to represent himself. Okay, Now, they think the reason he did this was because he wanted to give a speech on the stand about his philosophy, and he wanted to make a call to arms to people to bring down industrial society. That's why they think he did it. And that's probably why they denied him because he got a bunch of lawyers and the lawyers wanted to say, you're, we're going to argue that you're insane. They're going to give you a plea deal to get eight consecutive life sentences instead of the death penalty. The only thing we can do for you is give you life sentences instead of the death penalty. And he said, fuck that. I don't care. I want to represent myself. And he tried to fire his lawyers, but they wouldn't let him, um, So he argued that he was not insane, and that he should be allowed, legally allowed, to represent himself. So they ordered a psychiatric evaluation. I read the psychiatric evaluation. It's 50 pages long. If you want to know about the Unabomber, but you only want to read one thing, this is what you should read. Because there's a lot of stuff in here that no one ever talks about. Apparently some of it was published in the Washington Post, uh, but it was cherry-picked. They did the psychiatric evaluation to determine if he could represent himself. And they said, well, this guy has full-blown untreated paranoid schizophrenia, but he's so intelligent and he's so lucid and he's so rational and he's so able to communicate that uh, we deem him mentally fit to represent himself. And the judge struck it down. This was in like 1998. 1998. So the reason this psychiatric thing was commissioned was so that they could determine if he could represent himself, and they determined that he could. The judge struck it down. He fought this up until 2003 when the judge finally said, All right, fuck this. No more. You're done. Eight life sentences. It's over. You can't represent yourself. Um Kaczynski's insistence through this whole thing was that he was not mentally ill. He wanted to fire his uh, uh, lawyers because they said they wanted to argue that he was mentally ill, and he says, I don't consent to that because I'm not. He insisted that he was uh, sane because he wanted his philosophy to be taken seriously. He didn't want it to be considered the rantings of a madman. And if you read it, you'd probably have no idea that he was so mentally ill because it comes across extremely reasonable, extremely well-argued, and like I said, extremely lucid. But through this interrogation, or well, not this interrogation, but this psychological, psychiatric evaluation, it's quite clear that this guy, full-blown homeless person on the street muttering to himself schizophrenic, which he did, He would mutter to himself. When he was sitting in that cabin, I'm sorry to tell you, he was not chopping wood and fashioning his own bow and arrow and bringing down elk, okay? He was writing long, long, long screeds about all the people who harmed him in his life and all the wrongs that people did with him and all the ways he fucked up his relationships And why he was so alone. And why he didn't have anybody in his life. And why didn't girls like him? Why didn't he ever have a girlfriend? Am I good looking? Am I attractive? A woman, An older woman when I was 15 said I was handsome. So he would sit there in his cabin and write pages about things that happened to him when he was 10 years old. 15 years old. Passing statements that strangers made to him that he was still writing pages and pages and pages about, okay? He ended up writing another autobiography in 1979 that the psychiatrist read and that she talks about in this evaluation. And he would talk in this autobiography about, he would like meticulously list all the encounters with people he had throughout his life, And how old he was when he met them. And this person he met when he was 10. And maybe she had a crush on me. And maybe I could have married her. Maybe she would have fallen in love with me. He was obsessing about these things. Maybe if I had said this back to her when she said this thing to me, she would have said this other thing back. And then we would have gotten together and we would have been in a relationship. And then he goes to when he was 16 and he meets somebody else. And then he goes to when he was 24 and he meets somebody else, right? Time goes by. I mean, I'm skipping a lot. But, like, he talks in the diary about how this woman, when he was 15, said he was handsome. And he thought about it for years. Why did she say that to me? He says in the autobiography that I thought about this for decades. And finally, when he was like 40, he went up to a stranger, a woman, and said, do you think I'm handsome? And she said, well, you're okay. The fucking bitch. And he said, but when I was 15... This woman said that I was attractive and she was an older woman. Why would an older woman lie to a 15-year-old? And he got into this crazy conversation with a stranger about, about this, okay? And he wrote about this in his diary. <laughs> Is this a, does this sound like a sane person? He would write letters upon letters upon letters to his family about little slights that they did and said, You did this to me. You made me crazy. You're the reason why I was alone. You have to apologize to me. And the things were like making him take the garbage out. And put his socks in the hamper. And then they would write an apology back. And he would write five page letters about how the apology wasn't good enough. And how when you said this, right? He's perseverating. This is something that paranoid schizophrenics do. They're hyper narcissistically aware of the little things that other people say to them because they second guess them. Another thing he says to the psychiatrist is he goes over these things that happened to him. Okay, This was in 1996, 1998. He was like 52 years old at this time. 55, he talks about conversations that he had in 1969 with his roommates, and he was second-guessing the conversations to the psychiatrist. She said he would go on for hours about this. He said this to me when, when I was 21 years old, and I said this to him, and then he responded this way. Why would he say that to me, right? And then he started talking about how people were always talking about him, how he could hear noises on the other side of the wall, and he knew they were having conversations about him. And he would see people on the street. And they were having hushed conversations. And he knew they were talking about him. These are all the hallmarks of paranoid schizophrenia. But what else did he talk about? He talked about murdering psychiatrists. He perseverated on murdering psychiatrists. He said he would fantasize about it endlessly. He said he would get extremely nervous, extremely tense, and then he would fantasize about murdering a psychiatrist. And then he would feel this intense relief. And it got so bad, he couldn't become sexually aroused. When did, he, when did this happen? This happened right after he got out of Harvard. It happened right after the MK Ultra tests, where he started having these fantasies about murdering psychiatrists. And his, the, his nervous tension was so great that he couldn't become sexually aroused anymore. And he couldn't find himself being attracted to women. And he started becoming obs- and he wasn't talking to anyone. And he was living in this dorm where his roommate was like fucking his girlfriend on the other side of the wall, and he could hear them having sex, right? And it was driving him insane. So he started to wonder, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get a woman? Why can't I have sex with anyone, right? So he started having these autogynophilic fantasies of himself dressed as a woman, becoming sexually aroused, dressed as a woman. Isn't it interesting that the man who worked for the CIA, who invented the interrogation test that Kaczynski was subjected to at 16 years old, who was giving people LSD against their knowledge, isn't it interesting that he was a man who would get dressed like a woman and fuck his girlfriend? who wanted to be seen as the father of his students. I can't help but think these two things are related, okay? I can't say exactly how. I don't know. But here's the thing. In the four years after he got out of Harvard, from from like 62 to 66, right, he was having these problems with women. He wasn't able to, like, talk to a woman. His roommate was normal. His roommate was having sex with a woman, and he could hear it all the time. He got to the point where he couldn't get sexually aroused. He was having all this like nervous tension. Uh, He started imagining himself as a woman. So he decided he has to go to see a psychiatrist. This is 1966. He wants to tell the psychiatrist, I think that I'm really a woman and I want a sex change operation. But he chickened out at the last minute and told him he was having uh, nervous anxiety and depression about being drafted to go to Vietnam. And the psychiatrist told him, don't worry, this happens to everybody, you're fine, it's normal, it'll pass, and he leaves. Okay? It's that moment that he began to have murderous fantasies that relieved his sexual tension. It was that. He started thinking about murdering that psychiatrist. Specifically. And then, it just turned into an obsession that lasted years. Where the only way he could be find relief from sexual tension, was by murdering, um, fantasies of murdering psychiatrists. All right, so this is clearly a man, and during this time, he moved to Montana. This is clearly a man who was spiraling into deep psychosis. Now, I don't, now these are autogynephilic Uh, fantasies, right? But I don't think you can reduce all this to him being an autogynophile because he says in this psychiatric evaluation that all through his life he was attracted to women. All through his life he was sexually attracted to women and he wanted to have sex with women. He wanted to have a normal relationship. And he went out and he tried to talk to women. He tried to have encounters with women. He tried to get them to like him, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't pull it off. Okay? He was like the first incel. He couldn't pull it off, and he always failed. I like to think that this, auto, this short-lived period, by the way, of after he became, after he started having the fantasies of murdering these people, they went away. And he went back to just wanting normal relationships with women, with himself as a man. I like to think that whatever was going on in this interrogation techniques with this supremely fucked-up individual fucked him up, and put all this shit in his head, okay? I can't imagine that it's a coincidence that this dude started having murderous fantasies about doing the exact thing that the administer of this test himself did for a living, (laughs) okay? I, I mean, you have to be a fool, right, to think these things don't have anything to do with each other. That's what I think. Now, let me tell you something else, okay? It's quite normal, for a paranoid schizophrenic who's unmedicated to have these pathological codependent relationships with their doctors, where they want to kill them, or they want to have sex with them, or they want to kidnap them, or they they start seeing them as surrogate parents and they form this codependent relationship with them where they, like, obsessively need to be with them. All right? This variety is not shown across the uh, the cross-section of patients who were subjected to MKUltra mind control experiments. They all only demonstrated the urge to kill these psychiatrists. Okay, Whitey Bulger said, I became a murderer because I wanted to fucking murder the scientists who subjected me to the test during MKUltra. Yes, Whitey Bulger, you've probably heard this was subjected to Ultra tests, mind control tests, while he was in prison. He was given LSD. It's known that he was given LSD against his will, against his knowledge. And he fantasized about murdering those doctors. And he said, if I ever got my hands on them, I would kill them all. Okay? Uh, there's another guy who was written about in the book Chaos about Charles Manson, who was also dosed with LSD against his will. I hate saying things like this. He murdered a four-year-old girl. He also raped her. He was subjected to MKUltra tests, experiments, given LSD against his will, against his knowledge. And when he was interrogated, you know what he said? He said, I thought I was being attacked by a man in a dress who was trying to rape me. Okay? So, I don't know what this makes you think. But it sure as fuck sounds like Ted Kaczynski. And it sure sounds like MK Elder has a track record of turning people into sexually deviant murderers <laughs> with weird fantasies, uh, weird impulses and urges and things like that. So I don't know. You tell me. Did Ted Kaczynski have these weird sexual fantasies that led him to, uh, to having fantasies about murder? Because he was interrogated during the MK Ultra program? Or is it just a coincidence that it has nothing to do with it? That he's just an autogonophile, and autogonophiles are deviants and he wanted to murder people because he was a freak? Do you really believe that? According to him, according to his uh, autobiography, he stopped having those autogynophilic fantasies after he started imagining murdering people. And let me tell you, this wasn't an isolated incident, okay? He spent a decade writing in his journal that he was fantasizing about murdering these doctors. Uh, And at the same time, he's developing his uh, technological society and his future philosophy. He's reading Jacques Ellul. He says he read Jacques Ellul six times. He was writing letters to him. He, He was learning how to make bombs. He was reading... Uh, who knows who else he read, There's an interesting thing, here's an interesting thing, I think he formed like a parasocial relationship basically to like the Harvard program, this is the argument of this book, uh, Harvard and the, one of the people he read, okay, if you read, if you, re- I'm not gonna really talk about, because I spent so much time talking about the tests. I'm not really gonna talk about the, uh, his philosophy, I don't think, I mean, we can talk about it, But if you read his philosophy, it's quite clear, you can see Nietzsche and Spengler and Heidegger all over it. He read these guys in the program. He read Man and Technics in the program. He read Will to Power in the program, okay? His critique of the left is basically a Nietzschean critique of the left and communism. His critique of communism is basically what Nietzsche's critique is. His critique of the technological society is basically Spengler's critique, which is that There comes a point where uh, you cross some ineffable threshold, right? And all the technological production that is used to service humanity to make our lives easier, it no longer makes our lives easier It no longer even does anything for our lives. We're just making more technology for the sake of technology. We're merely accumulating technology. And when that happens, when technology isn't doing anything for you anymore, when you're not using it, to better the world or better yourself or better your life. It's using you to make more of itself. This is Spengler's fundamental insight. And he says we end up trapped inside the machine. We're no longer able to get out of the machine. We are no longer running the cogs of the machine. The cogs are running us so that we could make more cogs. This is also uh, Heidegger's in framing. You become inside technology and you can't get out. This is... Uh, explicitly in uh, industrial society and its future. This is his perspective. He learned these things. He read these things at Harvard, okay? But, now none of this, by the way, is meant to take away from his philosophy. Actually, I don't think it takes away from his philosophy at all. All I'm trying to do is express to you what an impact, what a formative impact for the rest of his life Harvard had on him. All right. And there's another interesting catch here. Someone else they read in Harvard was this man named Lewis Mumford, who wrote a book called Technics and Civilization. And it's about how technology shifts the consciousness and reorients, uh, reorients the cultural production of a culture around itself. Um, And that culture becomes sort of focused around the fulcrum of different technological interventions. The obvious one is the printing press. Now, I've never read this book, Technics and Civilization, but I did read the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, by Neil Postman. And he has like a 30-page excerpt where he talks about the sundial and the watch and the clock. It's fascinating. It's highly recommended. But he talks about how medieval life was suddenly oriented around the clock. It was suddenly oriented around the sundial and how time started to regiment everyone's life, which before this technological invention, right, it didn't factor in. It was oriented around other things like religious rituals or, you know, the chiming of church bells or things like that when it was time to do certain prayers and things like that or when it was time to venerate the emperor in Rome or anything like that, right? This is important because Lewis Mumford was one of Henry Murray's uh, closest friends. All right? So this guy's book that they were reading that helped Kaczynski formulate his entire world picture was written by a close colleague, associate, and friend of the man who gave this guy the test, who administered this test to Ted Kaczynski. So it's like he was like engineered, at harvard to become the man he became and because he was so mentally ill he just perseverated on this stuff for the rest of his life um you have to go read the the psychiatric evaluation it's extremely elucidating into this man and it it comes across like two different people it the, the way he acts and the things he supposedly wrote in his autobiography that she talks about it comes it comes across like a totally different person than the guy who wrote Industrial Society and its Future. But she says directly and explicitly in the psychiatric evaluation that he's extremely intelligent. He has basically a photogenic memory, uh, but he has extremely bad interpersonal skills, and he can't really carry on a normal conversation. And one of the things she said is that he was repeating verbatim to her things that he had written in his diary and in his autobiography from the 70s. And when she would try to get him to elaborate or rephrase things or put them in other words or uh, uh, illuminate what he was saying to her, he couldn't do it. He would get her bogged down in details. Well, why are you asking me that? What exactly do you mean by uh, elaborate on this? Well, Why would you want me to elaborate on this part and not elaborate on this other part? Uh, what exactly is the point? And she said this would go on for hours. So what I think basically is we have this extremely intelligent guy who was constantly writing all this stuff, and he was like able to crystallize it into industrial uh, society and its future into this manifesto, right? But I don't think you can ext- extract that piece of writing from the greater context of who he was as a man uh, and his mental illness, even though the things he says in there are pretty reasonable. His critique of the left and the power structure of the left is, is on point. Uh, his analysis of industrial society has a lot of truth to it. Sure. But it is an extremely pessimistic view. I mean, it is an extremely irredeemably nihilistic, pessimistic view, Uh, That makes all the other nihilist and pessimistic writing that I've ever read, which I've read a lot of it, uh, very pale in comparison because these other guys, Thomas Ligotti, I can't think, I've read others, well, Heidegger and Spengler, Uh, I'm trying to think of the other guy's name. There's another one. These guys all come across sort of like they're trying too hard. Like they've come up with this philosophy and they're like trying to argue the case for pessimism. Kaczynski's argument itself backs you into a corner and traps you into a labyrinth, and you can't get out of it. There is no getting out of it. His solution is bringing industrial society down, crashing down. And one of the things he says is like it's actually good that we're living in a globalized world because uh, it it be- globalization is so dependent on technology that if it falters if the supply chain falters or if manufacturing falters in one place of the world it can actually bring down uh industrial society in other parts of the world that would be completely unaffected if it wasn't a globalized society so he like is always finding this angle and he says you can't subjugate your political philosophy uh, to your perspective on technology, you always have to keep perspective that the goal is to bring down technology because anytime you come up with another goal, you can find a way for technology to use that technology to help uh, accomplish this other goal, right? So then you, as soon as you let it into your life, as soon as you uh, use technology to accomplish a goal, uh, technology lets its way in. It's like an alcoholic who says, well, I'm just going to take one sip of wine. We well, can never take one sip of wine. You're you're right back to being a full-blown alcoholic right away. So he's saying that, like, there's no way out. You, you have to just completely, like, cut yourself off or you're completely trapped and owned by it and controlled by it. And he also says that, like, socialization... This is the interesting thing, because the CIA and MKUltra was heavily invested in social engineering. They explicit. I mean, they sat around... Before MKUltra existed, they sat around and had meetings. Where they talked about, what do we want to social engineer America into being? What do we want... How do we want to socially engineer America into doing this? And then they came up and decided all these things, and then they uh, went about implementing it, or trying to implement it. So, the direct goals of the program... That Ted Kaczynski, this is I'm, I'm trying to make this argument to you, that this megalomaniacal narcissistic, uh, pathological relationship to himself and to his like administers, the doctors in them, is baked into his philosophy. Because the people who perpetrated this on him in Harvard were the social engineers who advocated for technological society that he was trying to kill. This was a personal vendetta. Do you understand what I'm saying? These people that he rails against in industrial society and its future are literally the same people who put him through this at Harvard. Now, again, he says it wasn't traumatizing. Uh, I don't take him at his word for it. He clearly demonstrates repeatedly, and I've only given you like three examples this psychiatric evaluation is rife with examples of him saying his parents... He blames the whole thing on his parents. He blames everything on his parents. Hold on. Meanwhile, Whitey Bulger blames the whole thing on MK Ultra. So I don't know. You have to make your own decisions. But uh, that's my case for Ted Kaczynski's Industrial society and its future philosophy being uh, an extremely complex, extremely sophisticated personal vendetta against the doctors who subjected him to these tests. Now, if you remember, there are some really, really, really good uh, cinematic uh, uh Example, um, retellings of the MK Ultra story. The first and second season of Stranger Things. I don't really like that show for the most part, but there are some good elements to the first two seasons. Jacob's Ladder. Uh, True Detective Season 2. And what was the other one? Uh, there's another one. Beyond the Black Rainbow. In these, it's particularly in Beyond the Black Rainbow and True Detective, uh, this scientist, this mad scientist, they're doing these experiments on girls in these, in these two movies. They're subjecting them to all these things. Uh, they call him Papa in Stranger Things. So he, he is playing their surrogate father. And they don't. I don't think they call him Papa in uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, but he has this like fatherly, but it's extremely creepy and fucked up relationship to the girl in the movie. And when she escapes, uh, he believes that he comes across these two guys that he believes that he they even have met her and potentially had sex with her, and he kills them uh, like a father taking revenge. This these characters are based on Henry Murray. these characters are based on this fucking guy. All right. Uh, so I have to assume, oh, and Ken, Keniston, Kenneth Keniston, who wrote this book, the uncommitted Kaczynski was like one of his like test subjects. He was his Guinea pig that he was trying to observe sociopathic, uh, anti behavior in people who refuse indoctrination, but are able to are too smart to fail these mental illness tests. He wrote a book about this guy. Kaczynski read that book, okay? So while he's in the in the cabin in the woods, like, ruminating and perseverating on all these things, he reads this book about himself that the administer of this test wrote about him. So he spent his life obsessing about this shit. So that's the end of my presentation proper, but I want to just leave you with a question. Is it reasonable to think he was subjected to these things, during the Harvard experiments. You can't know because he lies about it. He doesn't have good insight. That's one of the things, right? Schizophrenics have poor insight into their disease. He doesn't have good insight to what happened to him there. Uh, There's almost no objective information about what happened during those tests. All we know about those tests is that one of the guys was conducting uh, research for a book he was writing about... Indoctrinating people into the technological society. And the other guy was a sexual deviant who drugged people against their knowledge and dressed up like a woman while he fucked his mistress. So, my argument is that uh, Ted Kaczynski was manufactured by this program. My argument is that he is one of the victims of MKUltra and the things he did are their fault. Because they were, like, basically fucking with this dude's mind. Uh, Charles Manson. The people that those people murdered, it was the CIA's fault. It was the CIA's fault that that happened. The CIA kept him out of jail on purpose for a long time. They knew he had violent tendencies. They knew he was getting into all sorts of fucked up shit with these girls. Uh... And they, they kept him out in the wild. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? I think they did that because they wanted to see what the effect of their program was. I think they wanted to see what happened in the world when they subjected people to these things. And I don't know if Ted Kaczynski was monitored. There's no evidence that he was monitored by the CIA after after he got out. I don't think there would be evidence. But who knows? Is the real reason why he uh, escaped to the mountains to get away from them? Is that really why he was hiding out? I don't know. We do know that MKUltra uh, followed many of their test subjects for a long time and kept contact with them and studied them and like made notes about what was going on with them. Uh, Henry Murray was connected to MKUltra, but it looks like he retired when Kaczynski graduated. It looks like they just kind of graduated everybody and let them all go. And uh, they never followed up with Kaczynski. That's, that's pretty much what I think. Uh, but it's worth thinking about. So Ted Kaczynski, uh, ideological terrorist or MKUltra victim?